This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. The mere fact that that I am here on the air means, well, it's a small victory. I'm here, I've lived another week, I can fight another day, I can get more information out to you. You're not going to hear many other places. And we talked about some pretty incendiary stuff last week, uh, the Obama uh, scandal, of course. And the fact that I was able to talk about that with some pretty amazing people and and still be on the air this week, well, hey, we need to celebrate our small victories. And uh, let me tell you what's coming up tonight. Last week, of course, we talked with Eliza Presley, who has, she says, DNA evidence that she is Elvis Presley's half-sister and that he is alive, living under the name of Jesse Garen Presley. I know it sounds ridiculous. It's almost, it become, it, it has become the butt of jokes, right? Everyone has sort of one of those Elvis sighting jokes about flipping burgers in Kalamazoo. But just, just suspend your disbelief and listen because we're going to do a quick update in about an hour with a forensic investigator and a, a licensed forensic investigator who, who says, yes, he's, He's seen the DNA evidence, he's examined the DNA evidence, and it is very compelling. And, of course, that DNA evidence will have its day in court. So this is getting very interesting. And people in Memphis, of course, talking about their native son, are really standing up and taking notice about this and scratching their heads, saying, my word, could this really be true? Could Elvis, in fact, still be alive? That's coming up. We'll also check in with a paranormal investigator who has on tape Voices from Beyond the Grave. They're called EVPs, Electronic Voice Phenomena, and uh, we'll we'll hear those spirit voices a little later. First off, in a few minutes, we're going to talk to two of the world's most renowned Roswell UFO crash investigators. 62 years ago, 
near Roswell, New Mexico, some vehicle crashed in the desert, and uh, the world has never been the same. Donald Schmidt and Tom Carey will be here, the authors of Witness to Roswell, and they'll give us new evidence to prove that the craft that crashed near Roswell was not a craft of this earth. Before we get to Tom and Donald Schmidt, uh, I welcome back to this program, a brand new home, of course, for the program, uh, a gentleman who is really on the forefront of UF disclosure, UFO disclosure in this country, and he is the uh, director of media relations for a, an organization called ExoPolitics Canada. We're going to find out what that means right now. First, let me welcome Victor Vigiani to The Conspiracy Show. Hey, Victor. Hello, Richard, and great to be here. Absolutely a wonderful uh, pleasure and honor to be with you tonight. All right. Let's, uh, I think we need to uh, maybe step back a little bit. You and I have done uh, countless shows on this, but we've got mm -hmm. a new audience. Mm -hmm. And many of you, of course, uh, out there have followed me from radio station to radio station. But for those of you who are joining us for the first time and um, have heard words like exopolitics or, you, or terms like UFO disclosure, and you're not really certain what that all means, uh, I, we need to take some time and explain. Yeah, it's really important that that context be set for us, Richard, because uh, without a doubt, this story, uh, not only the Roswell story, but the information regarding uh, unidentified flying objects and an extraterrestrial presence is, in fact, the biggest story in history. Uh, and I don't say that with any kind of um, reluctancy, because it is the biggest story in history, one that's not been covered by mainstream media at all in any way, shape, or form. So I think we have to understand that given that context, the, the idea of unidentified flying objects, uh, knowing that uh, this is a reality, and not only is it a reality, it's a reality that our governments know. The government of Canada knows about it. The government of the United States knows about it. Great Britain and most of the other G8 countries have all had this secret uh, sequestered for about 62 years. And it is up to us to find out uh, what this reality is and how it um, affects us geopolitically and how it affects us socially. So our position in, um, in exopolitics is that uh, the UFO phenomenon is real. There's absolutely no doubt in our minds that unidentified flying objects, uh, most of them or some of them, uh, are in fact of non-terrestrial origin. We can take that to the bank as absolute uh, unequivocal and irrevocable proof. And we, governments know this. That's correct. We have documents stating with government officials, military officials, they've been involved in this for the last 62 years. And perhaps uh, during subsequent shows, we can get into some of those documents because they say things very specifically about how they managed to cover up the story uh, in, in plain sight for 62 years. Victor Vigiani uh, joining uh, me here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. And a little bit later, we'll, uh, we'll speak to two Roswell investigators, actually quite uh, shortly. Uh, because that is almost ground zero, is it not? 1947, that's yeah. when the, the, the secrecy began, when the government in the United States tried to hush up what actually transpired that night near Roswell, New Mexico, a UFO crash. Exactly. We have information that there were some types of crashes or at least interventions before that. However, the Roswell incident actually didn't happen at Roswell. It happened near Corona, New Mexico, right. a small town just outside of Roswell. Yeah, July 3rd, 1947 was the date that things really began. And the first announcement by the uh, United States military, and it's ironic that, and we'll probably hear more about this from Don and Tom later on, 
the first memo, the first uh, press release that they actually let out was in fact the truth. They said a flying saucer had crashed in the New Mexico desert. Why would they do that? To begin with? Yes. Well, because it was the truth. That because they had no idea what this thing was. And they knew that it was not a craft of Earth origin. They knew that the metals that they were finding in the two or three crash sites that were, were there was, not, was metal not of the Earth origin. And second of all, they found bodies. So they let this out in a, in a press release to begin with. And on the same day, on the very, very same day, uh, Colonel Ramey, uh, one of the people in charge of press relations, uh, it issued another um, press release saying that it was just a weather balloon. And that is exactly when the cover-up began. And the military was called in and sequestered the entire area. People were threatened uh, with their lives and not to say anything. Military people were told just to be quiet and never bring this up for fear of being incarcerated. So this is, as you say, it is ground zero for uh, ufology and, and the entire idea of an extraterrestrial presence. But you're, you're uh, involved with Exopolitics Canada, and there are these uh, groups forming all over the world in, in, in uh, many, many countries. Uh, and, and your aim, your goal is to pressure, to help pressure governments to release, for example, in the United Kingdom, the mm -hmm. British government just released some new UFO yeah. files. So some of these countries are actually starting to do this. France, Brazil, Mexico. They certainly are. Yeah. Why the foot dragging here in Canada and the United States? Well, the, the idea is that the bringing out of the truth um, by the United States government will be the turning of the page. We know that the British government has released about 8,000 files. Canada has on file 9,500 that have been released. But actually the, the formal admission, acknowledgement by the United States government will be in fact, as far as I'm concerned, uh, really make the page turn in history for the complete formal acknowledgement of, uh, of the reality of the UFO phenomenon. So that's coming up soon, we hope. All right, hold on to your hat. Back with more. Victor Vigiani talking UFO disclosure. They're real, they're here, they're out there. But who are they? What are they? What do they want? Maybe we'll find out shortly. The truth will set you free. But first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Joining us on the uh, the line is, are, rather, two of the, the world's foremost Roswell UFO crash investigators, and uh, they are the authors of Witness to Roswell, here joining us tonight with uh, some perhaps new evidence uh, that really, I, I think, is going to nail the uh, the case shut on what sort of vehicle it was that crashed near Roswell, New Mexico, just over 62 years ago. And uh, I'm happy to have Donald Schmidt and uh, Thomas Carey on uh, the show. Welcome, gentlemen. Good evening, Good Richard. Richard. Nice Thanks for having you. us. All right. And, of course, uh, Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics Canada here in studio as well. Hi, Victor. Hey, Vic. Good to talk with you again. Good to talk to you guys, too. Great being with you. Donald, uh, Tom, you're, uh, you've, you've recently republished uh, one of your earlier works. Why, why the need to republish? There's, there's new information coming out? Is that, is that the case? Yes. Uh, we, we, uh, the first edition came out uh, two years ago in 2007, and uh, we had much information that we could not get into the, the first edition because of uh, 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 space limitations. And we've also gotten, continued the investigation and have got, come up with new 
new uh, witnesses, new evidence. Uh, so, plus the the first edition was the number one UFO book sales wise in the world for 2007 and 2008. So, we wanted to do another book, and so did our publisher uh, with those results. So uh, it was like a perfect storm, and uh, we uh, expanded and updated. Uh, the 2007 book into a uh, much larger book with additional chapters and additional information. So we, we've talked about this. We bef- did it. We've talked about this before on the program. You are literally in a race against time. We're talking about an incident that happened 62 years ago. So even if one of the witnesses was a, a was a paper boy, and there were some very significant mm-hmm. eyewitness accounts from boys at the time delivering papers, even those witnesses are now in their mid to late 70s. So, I mean, I have to think this uh, republished and updated uh, work is is going to be perhaps the last the last major work on, on the Roswell incident, is it not? Well, as Tom could, uh, this is Don, testify, one of the, uh, he was the actual last crewman who was on specifically one of the body flights that went out on July 9th, a day after the weather balloon press conference with uh, General Ramey in Fort Worth, Texas. And um, he surprised us by coming to the anniversary festival in Roswell just uh, last month. So he's 85, still hits the golf course three times a week, and um, you know, really renewed our faith that it's entirely up to us as we now are in this end game and we would agree today i heard the figure was up to 1800 a day the world war ii generation the attrition rate that are passing away yes that are passing away and uh, i know tom just spoke to another witness just a couple weeks ago again granted uh and fortunately a lot of the lower ranking personnel at the base were even 17 and 18 at the time of the incident. But we're still talking 80-ish, early 80s. So we both, you know, know better than anybody. The young boys from that time, you mentioned the paper boys, uh, the very witness firsthand who was with Mac Brazel when he discovered the debris field. We thought we had time with him. He was only seven years old at the time of the incident. And he died a few years ago in his late 60s. So um, we, all, we know all too well that um, it's more times than not it's been our fault that we haven't talked to people only because we don't realize ourselves that time is you know, the greatest arbiter of silence. Roswell investigators, uh, death, yes. Roswell investigators Tom Carey and Donald Schmidt, authors of Witness to Roswell. I want to get Victor in here in just a second, but uh, you, you said something there that I want people to, to, to focus on. You mentioned that the, the gentleman that you talked to, an 85-year-old airman and, a, and uh, the last crewman that was on the flight that flew the bodies out. Did I hear that correctly? Flew the bodies out? Y- yes. Explain. Uh, the... Uh the gentleman's name is Arthur Usupchuk, and uh, he's 85 years old today, in good health. He is the last surviving crew member of the B-29 
29 known as the Straight Flush, which uh, on July 9, 1947, flew out this large wooden crate, which uh, contained, we believe, three, possibly four alien cadavers from right, uh, I'm sorry, from uh, Roswell to uh, Fort Worth, and then it went from Fort Worth to uh, Wright Field in uh, Dayton, Ohio. The uh, There were two survivors up until just uh, two months ago when um, another fellow named Robert Slusher passed away. Uh, he was a good friend of ours. We knew him for many years, and he was also on that flight. So, All right. I've got to take a time out here. That, that, when I heard that Bob uh, passed away, I immediately called uh, Arthur Osipchuk uh, just to see if he was alive. Well, thank God you did. Listen, uh, uh, Tom and uh, Don, stay put. Victor as well, back on the other side as we continue to delve into the smoking gun that is Roswell, 62 years later. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Many of you joining this program for the first time, well, a, a, a heartfelt hello and welcome, first of all. Secondly, the information that you're hearing in this program may be very difficult for you to digest. We are talking about the actual presence of extraterrestrials here on this planet, visiting this planet, perhaps even engaging world leaders at some level. And many believe that it all began, the cover-up, that is, of this E.T. UFO reality in 1947, July of 1947, in a, uh, a vehicle crash near Roswell, New Mexico. The U.S. military first sent out a press release admitting that a flying saucer had crashed. Bodies were recovered. Later that same day... They realized, I guess, the gravitas of what had been divulged and said, no, wait a minute, no, 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 no. That press release, never mind that. Never mind what the left hand is doing. Look over here. It was a weather balloon. It was a weather balloon. Joining us on the line, two of the world's renowned Roswell UFO crash investigators. They have spent decades, ladies and gentlemen, of their lives trying to unravel this mystery uh, Tom Carey and um, Donald Schmidt are with us, the authors of Witness to Roswell, Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics Canada in studio. Uh, gentlemen, before the break, we were talking about the, uh, your conversation with an 85-year-old uh, vet, the, the last surviving um, a crew member aboard that flight that supposedly flew out the alien bodies. And the, the timing was very important. Keep in mind, 62 years ago, this gentleman is now 85 the uh, and, and another crew member had just died, you know, within very recently. So again, I want to em emphasize: you are in a race against time uh, with these witnesses to to, to get to the truth. Uh, and I didn't want to cut you off there; we had to break. So, ag again, um, your your conversation with this last crew member. Well, uh, his uh, I called. You know, it's it's difficult to call someone up just to to ask him if he's still alive, you know. <laughs> so Awkward, you were known yeah. to do that, yes. <laughs> so fortunately, I, I got his wife, and I really didn't have to put it that way. I, I, I asked for the gentleman. She says, oh, yeah, he's out playing golf. So I knew he was still alive. Well, that was, the, that was really the purpose of my call. 
and uh, I thanked her and uh, terminated the, oh, that's not a good word, but I uh, ended the conversation. And his son called me a few days later and said that uh, he had our book, and uh, he knew about uh, my conversation with his mother, and that he'd like to come to Roswell with with the uh, uh, the subject, Arthur Osipchuk, the the former crewman, and uh, I said, by all means, the the uh, people there would would love to see him. They like to see the firsthand witnesses. And uh, to make a long story short, the son drove from Florida, picked up his father in Alabama, and they drove all the way to Roswell in time for the festival. And we uh, introduced them at a uh, presentation that we gave there and uh they were very well received and uh, we went out to the the old air base with them and uh uh it was just a great uh, experience for don and me uh to actually see someone like that and he can certainly confirmed the body flight that we we knew about there's something really uh, specific that i'd like to get into gentlemen one of the things that's always fascinated me about this case and the whole entire situation is the fact that the United States military brought in extremely heavy security at the time. And they all but, uh, I guess you could use the word, abducted Mac Brazel. They sequestered him for, for quite a while. And special unscheduled flights coming and going uh, for all of this. And the amount of security that was used over the entire period of time and all of the charades that went on, uh, in spite of the fact that they said that it was a weather balloon, uh, maybe, Don, I could start with you. What would your comment be about all of this um, in the context of the, the statement that it was just a weather balloon? Why all the security? Why all this intense uh, bravado by the military to, to sequester this information? Well, Victor, you raise a very good point in that this would be well beyond the pale of extreme reaction or behavior on the part of the military concerning the mere recovery of a weather balloon. Even if the project were top secret, the materials weren't. It wasn't anything that would have you know, required any such um, military force, whether it was retrieving the material, whether it was threatening the witnesses, whether it was the behavior of the personnel on the base. Uh, Tom just spoke to another first-hand witness within the last couple of weeks that reiterated the security just around the big hangar, as they called it, P-3, Building 84 the B-29 hangar that the uh, wreckage, the ship, the bodies were, were, were kept until they were transported off the base. And that even legal force was authorized of anyone, you know, you know, getting too close to that particular building. Well, what in God's name? I mean, first of all, it was the first atomic strike force in the world headquartered at that base in 1947. Everyone, if you were the short order cook, in K-Squad, you had a top security clearance on that base. That base was on 24-hour, seven-day-a-week alert for the fact they had the atomic bomb. And what could they possibly have recovered, retrieved from that desert that would necessitate the authority that shoot to kill if anybody crosses a certain line? And it had nothing to do with the atomic bomb and certainly had nothing to do with a weather balloon. So it just continues to reinforce 
the nature of what was recovered, that it was something so ultra-secret, so sensitive that it surpassed even the, the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. And I defy anybody, any skeptic, any scoffer, to suggest that any type of weather balloon would reach that level of the, security. The, the thing that really fascinates me, too, about this is uh, Senator Dennis Chavez at the time, I think he was chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, uh, he actually made a telephone call to Walter Whitmore Sr., the majority owner of the radio station down there, KGFL, I believe it was in Roswell. That's correct. And he actually told him not to put on or broadcast the wire-recorded interview with Mac Brazel. And they, what would force or at least uh, come into mind of any senator to phone someone, and how must he have been pressured at the time to say, don't put that interview on the air? Let me just remind uh, people, uh, the, Mac Brazel was the, I guess, the, the rancher, and it was on his property that the, the this craft crashed. That's correct. He was the one who first first came upon it. So he I was thought, actually the foreman, the supervisor of that ranch. Okay, thank you. Well, the, uh, the fact of the matter is that the military had no direct authority over civilians, only in time of war or martial law, which is an extreme emergency, which this wasn't as far as the citizens were concerned. So they, they, the military couldn't uh, directly order civilians to do anything. So what they did is they, they got intermediaries, people in authority, to issue the orders, like the sheriff of uh, Roswell, I'm sorry, the sheriff of uh, Chavez County, uh, headquartered in Roswell. They used him to deliver threats to uh, silence people. And they also employed political people, local politicians as well as uh, uh, state and national politicians, such as Dennis Chavez. And Chavez, uh, he was made aware of the the wire recording that uh, Mac Brazel had made uh, with the uh, majority owner of KGFL, Walt Whitmore, and they were very fearful of that uh, that uh, recording being aired because it uh, had Brazel talking about the crash of a uh, unknown object uh, with strange properties, and uh, he also saw the little bodies. So they had to squelch that before it got out, and they used, uh, first they had the the uh, secretary of the Federal Communications Commission, a fellow named T.J. Slowey, uh, called the station to issue some threats. And I guess they felt that that wasn't enough, so they got uh, Senator Chavez to call the station and threaten Walt Whitmore with his uh, FCC license, uh, his livelihood, if uh, they aired that uh, wire recording. So uh, that's that's how the uh, uh, he became involved, as well as other politicians or, or uh, uh, local government uh, people. But the military could not directly... Uh, order civilians to uh, do anything. But as uh, we found out, they actually uh, did uh, cross that line on a number of occasions. And uh, we would call them civil rights violations today. Mm-hmm. But back in 47, uh, they, they couched it in the in the nature of a uh, national security and patriotism. And when that didn't work, they threatened them with their lives. Tom Carey and uh, Donald Schmidt. Witness to Roswell is the book. 62 years later, uh, they continue to hammer away at um, this mystery, what crashed near Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. Uh, you, you were talking about uh, uh, 
you know, who was employed or, or pressed into service to silence uh, the locals uh, about what they saw. But I seem to recall a conversation we had prior in which it was revealed that was it the uh, the deputy governor, the assistant, or the deputy governor, or he was the attorney general of lieutenant governor, lieutenant governor, governor uh, of um, New Mexico at the time. Actually, according to his family, saw bodies. Did he not? We were talking about Lieutenant Governor Joseph Montoya, who would become Senator Little Joe Montoya, and the Montoyistas, the supporters, the uh, people that uh, worked as far as towards his election and re-election. And a number of them were good friends of his in Roswell. And two of them were brothers, both Pete and Ruben Anaya, who actually uh, uh, worked out at the base at that time, so they had clearance to go through the front gate. And Montoya was in town not only for the 4th of July festivities, but we also believe for the dedication of a new aircraft, a new airplane. And he called up one of the brothers shortly after the whole, you know, buzz of the crash of the flying saucer north of town. And pick me up, get me out of here right now, get me the hell out of here, he basically said. And they were to meet him at the water tower, which just happened to be right across from the big hangar we had talked about earlier, P3, Building 84. And they arrived at that site, and the lieutenant governor exited from the building and got into the back seat and get me out of here, get me, you know, away from here as soon as you can. And he didn't want to return back to his motel. They took him to one of his homes, and... You know, he needed a drink, which he <laughs> quickly took, and he talked about they weren't human. They weren't human. And he would go on to describe how they took him into the hangar, and he saw the wreckage, and he saw a number of bodies under a tarpaulin. And one of the bodies was exposed, and he heard it moaning, and its leg was raised, and the knee was cocking back and forth. And that's when they realized they weren't children, that they were truly something extraordinary. He would threaten them thereafter, that he would call them liars, that the FBI would come and visit them and make sure they didn't talk about it. And really never said much more about it to anyone, including his own family. But once again, it demonstrated that other people came into the situation and would therein describe the same occurrence. We're not talking a weather balloon. We're not talking about Lieutenant Governor that became distraught, that became traumatized over just seeing neoprene rubber and wooden sticks and reflect the foil. I mean, it took something that was so earth-shattering as far as within his life at that time, that even thereafter, whenever he would you know, see these two brothers, he would again remind them, I'll call you a liar if you ever repeat what I told you. Hmm. Now, Tom had talked about the proxies, the sheriff. The sheriff, George Wilcox, would pay the Anaya brothers a visit, for example, and they would be threatened with their lives if they would ever t discuss the incident. For nothing more than just hearing from the lieutenant governor that he had seen the bodies recovered outside of town. 
Tom and, and Don, you've been at this for decades, as I as I've mentioned. Is there a, is there one piece of the puzzle that still eludes you uh, that uh, if you had that piece, as far as you're concerned, this case would be nailed shut, and you you could say with 100% certainty. I'm sure you can you, you believe you can say that now, but in terms of maybe even relaying this to the public. And, and you would be able to demonstrate to them, listen, there is absolutely no question we have the final piece of the puzzle. Uh, extraterrestrials crashed near Roswell, New Mexico in 1947, and uh, these bodies were seen by many witnesses. There is no question we are being visited by ETs. What's that one piece of the puzzle? Well, you mentioned it yourself, a piece of physical evidence. <laughs> Uh, would be the t- would be the top priority. We're we're pretty much uh, 99 and 100. What is it? 99 and 44. 100 percent convinced now, based on the testimony of over 600 witnesses that we have now. But the one remaining piece of evidence that we're lacking is a physical piece of evidence, something that can be tested. Uh, but in our case, we call it the Holy Grail of Roswell is what we're searching for. And by that we mean it's a piece of this so-called memory metal. Uh, Some of the wreckage uh, that was found was uh, reminiscent of almost liquid metal. uh, You could uh, pick it up and wad it in your hand, wad it up into a ball in your hand, and then uh, let it go, and before it hit a flat surface, it would be already flattened out without a crease, without uh, without so much as a, a, a mark of any sort. Uh, you couldn't cut it, burn it, or permanently deform it. Now, we believe that that particular type of wreckage would be instantly recognizable as, as something truly extraordinary uh, on its face. Uh, there have been pieces of alleged wreckage in the past, but as you know, they've all gone off to laboratories never to be heard, heard from again. So, so we're looking for something that would be instantly recognizable by most people, most reasonable people, as being something truly exotic and extraordinary uh, emanating from this crash. All and, right. Uh, we are on the trail, I have to tell you. Uh, we are on the trail of, uh, of this. All right. When we come back, we'll, um, we'll talk about where that trail might lead. Victor Vigiani in studio, Exopolitics Canada. Thomas Carey, Donald Schmidt on the line, the authors of Witness to Roswell, the website roswellinvestigator.com. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. There is no one on this planet who knows more about the Roswell incident than my guest, Tom Carey and Donald Schmidt, the authors of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the Government's Biggest Cover-Up. Victor Vigiani in studio from Exopolitics Canada. Victor? Tom, you were alluding to the fact that you're uh, on the trail of something interesting, and I know that um, you wouldn't say that unless you had a a pretty firm grasp on where you were going. Uh, Both you and Don have been involved in this for a long, long time, and it must be a trail that kind of... um, I guess, opens and closes sometimes for you. So what, what can you tell us about the, the trail that you're on? Well, it involves the son of a uh, fellow who was in the 509th uh, bomb group back in 47. We know that for a fact. 
uh, everything checks out there. So there's there's no there's no uh, problem with uh, who he says he is. He contacted us about ten years ago. With uh, he gave us hints of what he had. Uh, he gave hints about having physical evidence that his father left. His father uh, drowned in 1964, so he's long gone. And he didn't know about this until his mother told him about his father's involvement in Roswell on her deathbed. Uh, so uh, he contacted us through the UFO Museum in Roswell, and he said, uh, I have information, blah, 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 blah. Oh, yes, my father was also a photographer. And uh, he gave he dropped all sorts of hints, and then he disappeared on us. He would he wouldn't answer our uh, emails anymore, or our uh, phone calls. And so we figured, well, this guy's run away, and we'll never you know hear from him again. And lo and behold, last year he contacted us again uh, with the same information, except that he went into detail this time. He said that uh, his father had left three types of physical evidence. One was, if you recall, Victor, uh, in some stories, some accounts of the Roswell incident that talks about the, where the sand had turned to glass, where, where uh, ostensibly this, the craft uh, landed to perhaps try to effect repairs or something like that, uh, and it uh, heated up the, the desert floor to the extent that the sand had turned to glass. Yeah. Well, yeah. his uh, son said there was some of that in a, in a box that his father had left, and there was also some of the memory metal that we had uh, talked about uh, a few minutes ago. He left memory metal, and he also left photographs. And I said, well, do you mean photographs of the crash site? He said, yes. I said, do you mean photographs of the wreckage? I, he said, yes. And I said, do you mean photographs also of the bodies? And he said, yes. And I, I'm thinking, wow, uh, th this is, uh, this is yeah, I'm on the next plane. <laughs> so uh, to make a long story short, he said he had to pay a visit to his uncle, who was his father's twin brother, in California, but that uh, he would get in touch with us when he returned. And to make a long story short, it's been over a year, and he never, never did get back, back in touch with us. But being the good investigators that we are, we have uh, we we came into some good luck, and we had a uh, a another investigator, a, a journalist type investigator, who had contacted us to tell us what a great book we had. And of course, we thanked him. But uh, he was located in the same city that this gentleman is living in. So I checked with Don. I said, should, "You know, should we put this fellow on on this fellow because we have nothing to lose?" And Don said, "Go ahead. Yeah, let's let's try it." And to make a long story short, he did uh, reestablish contact with him about two weeks ago, and. Uh, my fear was that it was all a hoax because when our experiences, when they run away and hide on us, it's usually because they don't, they can't deliver on their promises or their stories. Well, anyway, 
He uh, met with him two weeks ago, and uh, the story was he, he felt confident that the, the, the fellow was telling him the truth, and the, and the fellow said, well, this, this should come out, uh, this, this has to come out, and uh, let's, um, let, let me think about it. And uh, that's where we are right at the moment. Uh, it's either the, it will either be the, the, the material, the physical evidence that's been lacking that will just blow this case uh, sky high into uh, the realm of absolute positive truth, or the fellow cannot deliver and he was making up something. So that's where we are at the moment. Uh, um, yeah. And, uh, We're talking about I, photograph, I th- a photograph of, of, of uh, an alien body. Now, 30 years ago, if someone presented you with a photograph like that, I would think that's f- maybe far more compelling a piece of evidence than today in the age of Photoshop. I mean, how do you go about verifying a, a, an important artifact like that? Well, certainly you verify the age of the film if possible and in this particular case supposedly there is still undeveloped rolls of film and we can only hope that um, you know this would be accepted as a genuine article especially if it present further photographic evidence I've got a break here but uh, I mean you guys have had a long time to, to, to develop that sixth sense in order to to, to, to suss out the phony eyewitnesses, you know, the wheat, to separate the wheat from the chaff. What does your gut tell you about this guy? Does he have the, the goods? To be honest with you, I am right in the middle. Uh, I, I, I've thought about this, and my hope, of course, is that he does. My fear is that he doesn't. So I, uh, um, uh, I know this is not the answer you want to hear, but I'm, I'm absolutely right smack in the middle on this one. As any good investigator should be. Not a bad place to be. All right, we'll uh, take a quick time out. Back with more of uh, the smoking gun that is Roswell with Tom Carey, Donald Schmidt, and, of course, in studio, Victor Vigiani. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. If I was hearing this information for the first time, I, quite frankly, would be, A, riveted to the radio, B, quite frankly, scared to death because we have two gentlemen on the line who have really dedicated the last decade and a half, maybe longer, uh, as researchers, investigators, trying to determine whether extraterrestrials are visiting this planet, whether they did and crashed in 1947. They seem pretty confident, 99 and 44, 100% uh, certain that this is the case. This is real. This is not a joke. UFOs are real. They are being piloted by ETs. And once every great while, one of those craft falls out of the sky and lands, or, or crashes rather, and the government swoops in and covers it up. Uh, Donald Schmidt and Tom Carey are with us. Witness to Roswell is the book, and roswellinvestigator.com. I urge you to get on up to the website and, and, uh, well, give these guys the sniff test for yourself. And uh, I think you'll find you'll walk away uh, confident that they are the real deal. Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics Canada. Just to echo those sentiments, uh, Richard, the, the book, Witness to Roswell, every single paragraph 
and I say this literally, every single paragraph is riveting with uh, information. It's just chock full of information. Uh, these guys don't uh, put in extra paragraphs just to fill space. Everything is there, and for the reading, it is just an amazing piece of literature. Uh, so I want to congratulate you guys on doing a great piece of work. Um, what well, we I'd thank both of you for the kind words. We well, really do. Yeah, it's, it's so important. Your, your work is extremely important. And that brings me to the question of why. Why is the American government so stuck in not even acknowledging, not even speaking of this incident or anything like it? What is the vested interest this government has in keeping this thing quiet? Well, Victor, you were even alluding to it at the beginning of the program, and that when the United States finally reaches the point of disclosure that it would be the final chapter, that it would be the final page, as far as a global movement towards uh, official disclosure. And I think it's because we believe that Roswell is the very incident that placed the United States in the driver's seat. It became that bargaining chip, that card, that we've always been able to play and use to our advantage. If it was simply just the threat, the, the, the talk that we were reverse engineering the technology, that we had the material of an advanced civilization that we were able to replicate to you know, our advantage, it would give us a pretty big stick to wave, you know, even in the face of the Soviets during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And now with the ending of the Cold War, I think it's a, a case simply of culpability. It's, it's twofold in the sense that it's a combination of cover-up of ignorance that they still don't know what they're dealing with and what can be announced. And secondly, the fact that there would be this culpability, this accountability for the fact that not only were they threatening civilians over the incident, but they were threatening children. And the fact that they were threatening parents with the killing if, of their children over this recovery of a weather balloon. And we have a growing reason to believe that some of these threats were actually carried out. That's scary. And if that's the case, the fact that, once again, during a time of peace and no, no declaring, declaration of martial law, that the United States military would be used to actually threaten its own citizenry, which in its face is a violation of the Constitution of the United States. That is scary, because how often have they done it since? And this may be just merely the tip of the iceberg. Do and that, yeah. especially for us as American citizens, both Tom and myself, is a, is a frightening consideration. Especially, too, in terms of the global impact that this is going to have once it does come out. And, and not only is there a, an element of culpability, as you, as you said, Don, the, the fact of the matter is that the government has lied for so long, for 62 years about this, they're going to have to come up with a pretty good story as to why they've kept the truth from us all. And that explanation, I think, needs to be heard by everyone on the planet, why the United States government has not only kept the secret itself, but has pressured so many other uh, countries just to keep their mouths shut, too. And that's one of the disturbing things that I find about this, that the control the United States has over this issue is so overwhelming 
that um, even though Brazil's released certain numbers of files and the Great Britons have released certain kinds of files, no one is really coming out and stomping uh, on, on a lectern saying, Mr. Mr. Um, Barack Obama, please come forward before this issue becomes yours, before the lie becomes yours. So, I don't know, it just seems to me that uh, this, this case seems to be the, the penultimate uh, admission that disclosure has to happen at some point in time. Yes, the uh, you know the the news that uh, Britain's released files, and I guess France maybe ten years ago released files. Uh, Brazil, the Russian Navy, but the the elephant in the room is the United States. What's the United States going to do? And uh, my belief is that they are never going to release for the, the reasons Don said uh, because of the culpability. They, culpability is a good word because not only did they threaten people and perhaps, as you said, carried out those threats and planted somebody in the desert, but they also have blood on their hands in the sense that if they back engineer technology uh, and they have, let's say, anti-gravitic devices at their disposal, yet they are sending people up in, uh, in rockets, the, the Mercury program and, and uh, the early Apollo program, and lives were lost because they were using ancient you know, rocket fuel uh, because it's all window dressing the Apollo program to, to, to hide this parallel secret space program. Well, they're, Challenger they're, and Columbia. They're culpable there, too. They yes. have blood on their hands. All right, gentlemen, listen. Um, we have not heard the rest of this, uh, the last of this, rather. Uh, we look forward to um, information, new information from both of you, wherever it may lead, in the coming uh, weeks, months, years, perhaps, and uh, let's stay on top of this in terms of this gentleman who says he has photographs of bodies. Uh, when you know, we'd like to also know uh, as, as soon as possible. Uh, Tom and uh, Don, thank you for this. Well, thank you, and I'm glad to have you back, Richard. And, Victor, thanks for inviting us. Great having and you with us. That is our mission. Our pleasure. I mean, as we uncover the truth, we'll provide it to All the right. public. We'll talk again soon. And, Victor, my old friend, uh, thank you for being here. It's been a pleasure, Richard. It's been a great show. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Listen, when we come back, a forensic investigator. Not a joke. First hour wasn't a joke. This is not a joke. He's got DNA evidence. He's examined it. He's looked at it. He says, very compelling evidence. Elvis Presley is alive. Don't you dare go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Coming up in mere moments, paranormal investigator Rosemary Ellen Guiley and in tow, some pretty remarkable audio that you'll hear. She contends this audio contains the voices of ghosts. Voices from Beyond the Grave caught on audio tape. That's uh, upcoming. Last week on the program, I spoke with a woman who was at Graceland attending the candlelight vigil. Of course, for uh, well, she wasn't there to celebrate to, to 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 mourn Elvis Presley, uh, because she believes very firmly he's very much alive. She was there as Elvis's half sister uh, to mourn her father Vernon Presley and her grandmother um, Minnie Mae Presley. She contends and has had a day in court that uh, she has the DNA, DNA evidence to prove she is the half-sister to Elvis Presley. Her name is now Eliza Alice Presley. But further, she says, DNA evidence will prove that a gentleman going by the name of Jesse Garen Presley, who is very much alive, 
is, in fact, Elvis Aaron Presley. I say she had a day in court in late 2008. A Tennessee judge looked at the evidence and said there's enough here to open up Vernon Presley's estate and look at this further. Now, as it turns out, that wasn't the proper uh, uh, court to hear all of the evidence, so there will be another day in court. But that brings us to our update tonight. We are joined on the line by a forensic investigator. We're only going by first names here tonight. And uh, we're going to find out more about this DNA evidence. And we welcome Garrett to The Conspiracy Show. Garrett, hello, and thanks for joining me. Good evening, Richard. How are you? I'm well, thank you. First, let me explain. Uh, people are wondering, well, if he's a forensic investigator, why uh, only a first name? You're not prepared yet for the the kind of media attention no, uh, that's going to show up on your doorstep tomorrow morning <laughs> once this information is out. Is that is that a fair appraisal? Uh, in due part to that, um, and uh, typically uh, crime scene investigators are behind the line, and you typically are not referring to data or forensics evidence because you're using it to um, deal with a, a criminal. So that's something you would not share with the general population. Uh, in this instance, I was asked to coordinate uh, the flow of data uh, for Eliza, and she did ask me if I would speak on her behalf regarding uh, the DNA uh, in the data that we have. Okay, so, now, uh, my time is tight, and I've got a lot of questions, so I'm going to ask you to be as brief as possible, and I appreciate your uh, your, your time here. Are you really? a licensed forensic investigator? Um, to be specific, the correct word is certifications. It's recognized for federal, state, law enforcement agencies, Interpol, uh, FBI, you're considered a a certified. You are, are, so are you a certified forensic yes, investigator? All right. What does a forensic investigator do? And, and please use layman's terms. Uh, layman's term is also referred to as you see on TV, crime scene investigator. Uh, typically, we process a crime scene, the details, A to Z. Uh, you'll do uh, processing any evidence that's found at a homicide or, or, or any investigation um, for law enforce, enforcement officials. So, um, basically, that's the background of what a crime scene investigator would that, would that Would that include examining uh, DNA evidence? Um, typically, we have specific people that deal with uh, the levels of evidence, and they are considered criminologists, and they are certified scientists who deal with a specific uh, level of science that they're qualified to, a ballistics expert. Um, an endondist, a uh, trace uh, evidence person, and so they're all specialized areas uh, that you would process a crime scene and need, uh, you know, those different types of investigations to complete and get a, a, a good picture of what occurred. Okay, so when it, come, when it comes to DNA, is that an, an area of specialty for you? Um, you run across it, you read it, um, and... It's in black and white print. Okay. So when you get a report, it, it concludes what it concludes. All right. It's very plain English. Certified forensic investigator Garrett, no last name, uh, joining me on the line. And this is an update on our story last week about uh, the Elvis is alive mystery. He, uh, well, let, let me ask you, how did you meet Eliza Presley, this woman that has had her day in a Tennessee court who claims she has DNA evidence 
proving she's Elvis's half-sister and that he is alive. How did you meet Eliza? Initially, back in 2008, I had contacted her because I saw the uh, evidence tape that showed that uh, the YouTube post that said that someone had DNA of Elvis Presley, and I said, what? And, of course, in my head, uh, DNA doesn't lie. You either have it or you don't. So uh, I had sent an email because I had seen a uh, publication stating um, her, her mother uh, giving um, some information over the news, and I was, I was baffled by um, her statement. And so I kind of had a sense of compassion for what was going on, and I saw how the case was unfolding. And so, in other words, you reached out to her and said, I think I can help this woman. No, what? I did not. No? No. Okay. Uh, totally the opposite. My intention was never, she didn't even know I was an investigator. She didn't even know I had a background uh, as a crime scene investigator. So that was not, that was not my motivation. I related to her story um, regarding her adoption. Uh, I had a friend that shared a similar uh, adoption story. Uh, my friend was uh, a product of a rape. And so when he found out he was a product of rape, he was searching for his parents and, and, you know, why was he giving up for an adoption? And so I felt for her in that, in that way. Okay. And um, so I contacted her, related the story, and she says, someone gets it, that I'm actually looking. This is an emotional thing. I'm, I'm looking for my dad. And I don't know, you know, from what the information I'm getting, it's, it's not accurate. It's just it's not happening. And so I had related that story, and over a period of months, we had gotten close, talked, and, and shared. And then she asked me what I did and what my background and training was. Ah, and then I she found out way. you're a forensic investigator. So what did, at that point, what did she ask you to do? Um, at that time, she was asking me certain specific scientific um, information I shared with her. And then she asked at one point, would I coordinate the discovery and the flow of data and the large group of scientists and discovery um, with so many different diverse people all over the nation um, and just in a timely flow and keep integrity. Okay. And, uh, and so if, if she was building a house, you would be the general contractor. You're, in other words, you're bringing together a team uh, that can examine various aspects of this case. Did she provide you uh, for your team DNA samples? Yes. Um, the DNA that I will go into, and I'll go into one piece, which is the, the pertinent and most important for the case, there were 12 lab tests uh, that were done. Uh, there were six labs that were approximately used to process the data. Um, there was, at the time, uh, DNA that was processed by a gentleman, and there's more questions as we go through. I'll give you more detail. Um, and that, that DNA was processed. That sample was processed and um, in, a, in a legal fashion, um, and um, her DNA was processed, and it was compared. So, uh, so Eliza s- supplied you with DNA, uh, her own, to compare with this other sample, and are you able to tell us the, what that other, who that other si- sample uh, came from? Okay, well, we... Uh, and I'll, I'll jump through and ahead. Of the 12 multiple DNA tests that had been run, the six labs that were used, um, and eventually showed that there was a relationship of kinship DNA regarding Elvis, Eliza, uh, this, or Elvis slash, he calls himself Jesse now, 
uh, Eliza Vernon Presley's relationship and the cousins that were involved, uh, it was concluded that uh, Eliza would basically have to be the daughter of Vernon Presley, and additionally that Eliza Presley would have to be um, the half-sister of Elvis. So a gentleman by the name of Jesse Jaron Presley that gave his name to initially um, someone totally different. It had nothing to do, there was no contact with Eliza originally. Um, back in 2000 with, uh, I'm sorry, 2002 with uh, Fox Cleveland Channel 8 News um, with a Susan Strafford. And uh, I had interviewed her as well, spoke with her. Uh, the information is true and correct. And this gentleman provided uh, photographic evidence whom he, he claimed to be and a uh, legal uh uh, DNA sample was processed. Uh, it's called a uh, uh, Now swab was run, and uh, custody was kept as evidence normally by a forensic evidence uh, investigator and with a local police uh, agency. Let me just stop you there, just to to, to uh, clarify for people listening. Uh, Garrett is a uh, forensic investigator on the line, a certified forensic investigator. Now, this Fox television station in Cleveland, this uh, reporter was trying to look into the claims of a Dr. Donald Hinton, who was uh, practicing medicine in Independence, Missouri, I believe, who claimed that he was treating Elvis Presley in 2001 or 2002 for various ailments, and this gentleman, Elvis Presley, uh, was, in fact, going by the name of Jesse Presley. So Fox had, they sent Jesse Presley a sealed uh, DNA kit and asked for a sample. It was all uh, uh, verified. They sent the sample, he sent the sample back. This was a, uh, a cheek swab or something, was it not? Uh, it's called, the proper name is, we'll call it B-U- C-C-A-L. It's a mouth swab. It's a cotton swab okay. on the tip. Okay. Uh, you basically brush the inside lining of your cheeks. Okay. Uh, and it will affix any of the, the the cells on the side of the cheek of the mouth. Got it. For, um, uh, forgive me, Garrett. I'm 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 going to push ahead because I'm I'm really tight for time here. I and I uh, I apologize for that. But so no you conducted this uh, or a member of your team this DNA a comparison between Eliza Alice Presley and the DNA sample that was provided to the Fox 8 television station in Cleveland that came from one Jesse Jaron Presley. That is correct. Multiple scientists, DNA experts. And what did, when you com- when those samples were compared from Jesse and DNA samples from, Eli- uh, from um, uh, Eliza, what did, they, what did they show? Initially, they thought there was a relationship early on that uh, with the cousins that there was a relationship of uh, him possibly being her, they couldn't rule out Je- uh, Jesse slash Elvis Presley being her, her actual, her father. And then when uh, they had done the comparisons and finished, it ended up that he was her half-brother and that Vernon would have been uh, her, uh, her father. So that's pretty, that's pretty staggering. I mean... Now, wait a minute, uh, uh, Garrett. This could prove that Jesse Garen Presley and Eliza are are half siblings. But how then do we right. make the the leap that this Jesse Garen Presley is in fact Elvis Aaron Presley? Do we have DNA samples from Elvis Aaron Presley to compare with Jesse Garen Presley? Um, you don't. You don't technically need them when you process kinship under the umbrella we'll call kinship. 
uh, DNA, you process the maternal side in the Smith family, and they were processed. And that DNA, um, the percent of, of being related, this is how you do it, uh, showed that these, she was indeed a Presley by birth, and indeed the relationship got stronger and stronger so that by the time they compared the cousins to Jesse, a.k.a. Elvis Presley, and they compared them to her. Um, because you had cousins on both sides. Gladys Smith, of course, was Elvis's mother. So if you have DNA uh, from Jesse that shows, I, I guess, uh, I don't know, the mitochondrial DNA is related to the Smith side, and you have the nuclear DNA, DNA which shows, I guess, well, the paternal. I don't want to compute. The problem with this is I don't want to go that deep, and this is the reason why. Generally, people are confused about DNA and how it's processed. Dr. Yates, um, as an expert, could explain A to Z, the process and the percents and how they work out. What's most important here in the big picture here is that the DNA shows she's not only a Presley and not only related to the cousins, but in the closeness and the relativity of her being related to them, that she would be considered... Uh, the daughter of Vernon Presley, and not only that, would have to be the half-brother. But uh, she, He would be the half-brother. But in order to have done that, a gentleman would have had to give his DNA. And because he did, and those samples were six years apart from each other, and when they found, and Eliza found out, that they had someone's DNA claiming that he was uh, Elvis Presley, um, a.k.a. Jesse, uh, she asked, can we have the labs run these and compare them. So you have to understand, she wasn't looking. We weren't trying to I understand. Out the, Elvis Presley at all. We thought, too, he was dead. Two quick questions, and then I've got to go, because okay. I'm late here. But, Garrett, uh, can you, uh, on live radio, here and now, state that as a certified forensic investigator, according to your findings, the gentleman known as Jesse Garrett Presley, who is very much alive, is, in fact, Elvis Aaron Presley? I feel, um, based on the data that I've received, the scientists I've spoken with, and what I've seen in front of me, that AKA Jesse is indeed Elvis Presley. Last question, and then we'll say goodnight for now. Surely. As a certified forensic investigator, if you were to deliberately fudge the results, what would the, re what would the, what would the, the penalty be if this evidence were entered into court? Uh, sure, I wanna correct something so you know. Um, DNA experts do DNA testing. I do not do that, okay? I coordinated this information. Okay. I oversaw. I don't do the interpretation as a scientist. You have to be very clear on that. Scientists do, do that. Um, but your question is, as we look at the information now, um, and what do we see? You, sir? Yes. What you see is, is that Elvis is Jesse. Jesse is Elvis. Yes, and, and would have to be, would have to be uh, with the relationship. And uh, not only do I, of course, feel that, but um, there were two forensics investigators um, that, who are DNA, one's a forensic specialist and a DNA expert in, cr in a crime lab, stated this, this shows staggering, amazing um, information. And then uh, Dr. Yates, who, who reviewed all the data from the lab, said this can only mean one thing, and typically when you mention uh, the, the possibility of changing DNA, you can, on a paternal, per, uh, paternity test, you can give fake 
give someone else's blood, your cousin. Okay. You can give somebody else, someone else's swab to, to determine whether that's your baby's daddy. But you can't create DNA out of a single layer. Got it. Listen, we, there are many loose threads here that we can explore perhaps uh, on another occasion. But I, I want to, uh, in closing, I want to say this, and then I've got to go, uh, and that is when this is entered into court, and apparently this evidence will have its day in court, are you, it, are you going it to... It is in court. It is in court. But the findings, are these, are these findings going to shake the world and this is going to be yeah. one of the biggest stories of the 20th, 21st century that Absolutely. Elvis faked Absolutely. his own death? And additionally, I want to segue something really brief to you. Is There's a lady by the name of Linda Sigmund uh, 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 Hood who has a website. There had been two prior investigations with documentation by a question, uh, question documents expert and graphologist. And the Attorney General for the state of Kansas City, Missouri, I want people to know this on the radio, that she concluded and he um, absolved this person, Hinton, from, from what was being claimed on the basis of the forensics investigator who had worked um, 17 years for uh, that department, that bureau, as a forensic investigator. And there's data out there on that website that shows the document from the Attorney General and that, you know, we're not trying to flush out Elvis. We're just getting this case resolved, and he can maintain his anonymity and, and being stay on the down low. Garrett. We understand that. We don't want any harm come to him. Garrett, I appreciate your time. Old, you know. Garrett, I appreciate your time. Listen, we'll talk again. Uh, but, sure. uh, it, wow, uh, the DNA evidence, folks, we'll have to wait for this one. But Jesse Garen Presley alive. He is Elvis Presley. I can't add any more to that. When in doubt... Blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. The aim of this program is not to report on the news necessarily. It is in some cases... Not intentionally or by design always, I suppose, but uh, uh, to make the news. And we may have just done that in the, uh, the previous 10, 15 minutes. DNA evidence suggests that Jesse Garen Presley is Elvis Presley and still alive. You'll have to make up your own minds. Listen, we came back from the break with what is known as an EVP. Uh, I, I wanted to play that for you because that is what they call in the business an A list EVP. They don't get any better than the one we just heard, and that was um, gathered by a group called the Paranormal Research and Investigative Studies Midwest. And uh, over the years, people uh, have sent me uh, these EVPs, or electronic voice phenomena, and they are allegedly the voices of spirits, 
or ghosts caught on tape. Now, that piece of audio evidence was captured in May of 2005 at the J.B. Moore home in Villisca, Iowa. Uh, I'm joined on the line now by a dear friend of the program. She is a paranormal investigator and the author of 40-plus books, many of the major encyclopedic works on all matters paranormal, uh, metaphysical, and uh, I brought her on tonight because I think this is very important information. Uh, metaphysically speaking, if we can capture uh, the voices of spirits on tape, obviously that means what? It means that we survive death uh, in, uh, in, some, in some aspects or some capacity. The physical body dies, but there's some energy out there that can still be recorded. And uh, without further ado, I have to welcome uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley to The Conspiracy Show. Rosemary, welcome and hello. Hi, Richard. It's great to be back with you. Great to have you uh, on the program. What do you think you're actually, I mean, you go out in, on investigations and you take recording equipment and you've captured some pretty remarkable electronic voice phenomena or EVPs over the years. What do you think uh, you're capturing on tape? I think we have several possibilities. One is the dead. <clears throat> Another is uh, uh, disembodied spirits who exist in other realms, perhaps parallel dimensions to ours. Uh, these would be beings who are, have never incarnated in human form but have an interest in human life. Uh, and another is um, extra, extraterrestrials or aliens. That's a possibility, too. There is even a, another more way out possibility, but some investigators are considering it, that we might even be talking to ourselves in parallel dimensions. We could have uh, versions of ourselves doing the same thing at the same time, looking for the same things that we are, and maybe that's one reason why we get our own names sometimes. What's your gut tell you, uh, Rosemary? What's your gut tell you? I think that uh, all of those are possibilities. I've always felt that the bulk of my communications were coming from, uh, not from ghosts of the dead, but from other kinds of entities. And uh, more recently, I've begun to entertain the idea of um, human beings in parallel dimensions uh, simply because of some of the messages that we get. Now, for the past several years, I've spent um, most of my time uh, attempting to establish real-time two-way communications as opposed to EVP, which is more passive. That's putting a recorder out, asking a question, leaving a space for an answer, and then uh, hoping to hear unknown voices uh, on playback. But uh, the latest wrinkle in that is... Um, another evolutionary leap into real-time two-way communication, and uh, that's what I prefer to, to do when I'm out on investigation. You're talking about Frank's box, and this is, uh, again, the distinction here, important. Uh, one is uh, a ghost hunter or an investigator goes into a uh, what they believe is a haunted location and just hits the, the play and record button and doesn't necessarily know there's any voice on the tape until after they take it home and play it back and then they hear some discarnate voice on tape but it, it, it the, the the what is spoken on the on the tape has nothing necessarily uh to do with anything that the investigators said uh while they were at the location the voice just is is captured versus 
taking this device called Frank's Box, which is like basically a telephone that allows you to speak to the other side, whatever that means, the other side, another dimension, you, where you can carry on real-time, two-way conversations with what's ever out there. And you do get very focused answers. Quite often they're short. Uh, conversations such as they are tend to be short as well. It's, it's like the, the links that we have to actually connect with something are very fleeting. I, I don't think we, we have the right technology yet for really sustained conversations. The work that George Meek did back in the uh, 70s with uh, his device called Spiracom, where um, he recorded uh, 20 hours worth, uh, or his medium did, Bill O'Neill, recorded 20 hours worth of conversations with primarily one communicator. Um, and those conversations, some of them are, are quite long. Uh, they've never really been replicated by other researchers. Most of the rest of us get very short communications. But that is one of the problems with EVP, uh, getting voices that don't really seem to be uh, talking about anything that you're asking questions about. It's kind of like you butted into some cosmic party line and uh, you're hearing other people's conversations. The Frank's Box devices, uh, or Ghost Box devices as they're called generically, are uh, based on radio. They're, uh, AM, most of them are AM band scan devices. Uh, that set up a, a noise matrix that spirit uh, can form words on. Uh, what researchers have noticed throughout the decades since we've had the development of, of uh, radio and the telephone, that um, disembodied entities or entities from other dimensions who do not have human vocal cords uh, seem to need some sort of uh, sound matrix to work with, almost like... Um, a sculptor needs clay, you know, to, to mold something out of. And uh, that's what's happening uh, theoretically with these devices, is that you give them that uh, sound matrix uh, for them to form words on to communicate. It could be something as simple as an electric, an electric fan running in the room, and, of course, that hum that, 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 that is created, they, they could somehow use that and manipulate that to form words. Well, that's true, and that would be more in the white noise category, uh, researchers have experimented with all kinds of sounds. It seems that uh, the sound of human voices, uh, which, of course, you would get on the radio scan, uh, works the best. It gives the, the best raw material. However, um, there are researchers now saying that uh, maybe we would get better results if we could go uh, down into VLF, the very low frequencies, or VHF, the very high frequencies, or even dead carrier waves where there isn't any broadcast signal modulating uh, sound. Um, and not very many people are, are doing those experiments yet, so it's, it's hard to say how successful they're going to be. Uh, this Frank's box, if, uh, named after its uh, inventor, if, if, I, um, if, memory, if memory serves, this Frank's box was actually sort of based upon one of the inventions of Thomas Edison, something that he was working on very secretly towards the end of his life. Thomas Edison wanted, was very interested in the paranormal, wanted to find a way to communicate with the other side. Is that correct? Do I have that right? Well, there's definitely evidence that Edison had an interest in that. Whether or not he actually built a device is highly controversial because when he died in 1931, um, he left no plans that were ever found and, and no prototype. 
there were people who knew him who said they had seen such a device and it had a microphone hooked up to uh, an aluminum trumpet that was filled with um, um, potassium, um, oh, well, I have forgotten the, the term, some sort of water-soluble crystals and attached to an electrode and, and an antenna. But others say, well, that's just folklore. Um, we don't really know because we have nothing surviving him uh, to prove that. However, he did make statements to the press. He wrote an article in Scientific American in uh, 1920 saying that um, it, it, there should be a way to communicate with the dead uh, and that um, we should be able to um, construct a device um, to this end and also record uh, those communications. And he also told a Brussels newspaper that uh, there really ought to be a better way of communicating with the dead uh, other than the spiritualist ways of, uh, you know, rappings, knocks, uh, table tilting, levitations, uh, even the Ouija board. He was very disdainful of what he thought were very primitive ways. High tech ought to be uh, employed. Rosemary Ellen Guiley here on The Conspiracy Show. Her website, visionaryliving.com, visionaryliving.com. Get onto the website and check out her uh, her shop and uh, you'll see the list of books there very impressive 40 uh, plus and counting including uh, ghosts the encyclopedia of ghosts and spirits uh, vampires werewolves and other monsters on and on it goes uh, and that's only one part of her work uh, she's also involved in many television and uh, and, and uh, other radio projects now rosemary what is the the principle behind uh, this current incarnation uh, this device, Frank's box. I mean, wh- how does it work? I mean, I know you're not a you're not a radio engineer or anything like that, but your understanding of the principle behind this thing. Well, you know, uh, I've asked, uh, I've wondered this myself, and I've asked the inventors of these devices. There are a number of people making different variations of these, and nobody really has a good answer. Uh, why would just uh, creating a device that scans up and down a radio band? enable spirits to communicate. If they were going to communicate, wouldn't they communicate a better way or some other way? Uh, And nobody really knows the answer. I do think that um, there is something about certain frequencies that uh, may penetrate the veil between the worlds a little bit better, and there's something about a scan. My feeling is that the, the scan, it's like having a radio on permanent rapid seek. Um, it goes up and down the band. Uh, some of the boxes are set to do random scans where things kind of pop around, and you get little bursts of, of words off the stations as the scan passes them. Uh, my own feeling is, from an occult perspective, that uh, the scan sets up some sort of subtle energy vibration that combined with your intention to communicate with these uh, other realms uh, sends out some sort of beacon into these realms that that uh, the entities can uh, see and respond to and do something from their side to communicate back. Um, and that's probably the best guess that anybody uh, could give. Some people just say, well, they don't really know why they work any more than putting a recorder out and leaving it running uh, would, would pick up voices as well. All right, let's, uh, let's give people a, a, a sample of, um, of how this Frank's box uh, works. I believe the, the, uh, the first one, um, well, it's, uh, 
the waveform that you sent me is entitled "It's Dark." Do you want to do you want to set that up for us and tell us where you captured this um, this recording? This was captured at the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield, Ohio, um, a huge prison which now is a historical site uh, and is built um, of largely of granite. Um, Movies are filmed there now, Shawshank Redemption, Air Force One, uh, a couple of the famous ones. Uh, and it's very haunted. I've been there a couple of times to do investigations. I have uh, seen apparitions there. I've seen shadow people. And, of course, I've taken um, one or more of my Frank's Box devices. And I have uh, four Frank's Boxes and then two devices called the Mini Box and uh, another device called Joe's Box. Um, so it could be any one of those that I take on an investigation. All right. What, I was what down, have... down in the solitary cell area, and uh, people are going to hear a very strange noise in the background, which is um, not words coming over a radio, but just kind of static because uh, that's what the reception was down there. And a man's voice clearly is superimposed on that, saying it's dark. All right. What I've asked uh, Dan Ellison, my technical producer, to do is uh, is to take the... Uh, the clip, slow it down, and then we're going to loop it. So you're going to hear it uh, several times with a, with a sort of a pause in between so people can really hear what's on there. So, uh, Dan, why don't we fire off that first one? It's dark. It almost sounds like someone's cranking a car engine uh, at, the, uh, at the beginning there, and but uh, there is something definitely being said now. And of course, we were sitting in the dark. Yes, and obviously, no. There was, I mean, there's nobody else around uh, other than yourself and perhaps another an investigator. Totally quiet. Uh, the cranking sound was uh, how the box was scanning, and um, there, there aren't very many radios around Mansfield. Uh, and then when you get down in a basement where, you know, we were surrounded by uh, granite and steel and whatnot, the reception got uh, even more deteriorated. And instead of uh, bits and pieces of radio stations coming through, we were just getting that kind of staticky noise as, um, as the device moved up and down the, the entire AM frequency. And I didn't think we were going to pick up anything at all. Uh, and I, I was uh, very surprised that, w that we did. So uh, evidently, it was still enough sound for something to come through. Uh, how is it you're able to, to, to determine that the voice that's coming through, again, you're scanning uh, up and down uh, the AM dial, these radio frequencies, that you're not actually intercepting, I don't know, uh, an, an actual uh, uh, you know, news announcer or maybe even someone who's on a, uh, a mobile phone, uh, how, how are you able to, to, to separate the, or determine that you've got the real deal here? It's a hazard for people who are new to this because uh, sometimes you can, in, uh, you can interpret maybe a word or a couple of words that pop off the radio. Sometimes they do seem to be very significant to, to what you're asking, however. Um, the voices that, that uh, seem to be of unknown origin literally ride on top of the scan. Uh, properly that scan is not going to light on any particular station for more than a second or two. And you might get one or two, or maybe if somebody is speaking very fast, 
uh, three words out of out of a radio before it pops off uh, to uh, to another um, place on the spectrum. But um, a lot of these unknown voices um, say something sustained that is far too long for the scan, and um, also that can be determined with an oscilloscope too. Uh, what frequency the voices are at versus where you are on the, the scan of the band uh, in terms of if, if something literally is coming in from the side. Um, so I, I call it floating because that's the feeling I always have is that these voices kind of float on top of the scan and they say something very specific uh, to, to what you're asking. All right, uh, stay put, Rosemary. We'll take a timeout, come back, and uh, listen to some more recordings taken from Frank's box. Some call it the telephone to the dead. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, paranormal investigator. My name is Richard Serrett, and I strongly urge you to stay where you are and continue to listen to this important information. In search of sunken cities and weird science, mythical beasts, and modern-day bloodsuckers, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett continues from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. No mistaking what that voice was saying, a child's voice. He's going to hurt us. Did you hear that, Dan? When you heard that? Yes, he's nodding. Yes, my technical producer, Dan Ellison, who just played that uh, EVP. And again, uh, that was sent to me. That comes courtesy of PRISM, Paranormal Research and Investigative Studies out of the Midwest. That is, uh, again, what they would call a grade A electronic voice phenomena and uh, allegedly the voice of spirits or dead people caught on tape. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is uh, with us, and in terms of a paranormal investigation, it just doesn't get any better uh, than this uh, woman. And uh, she's uh, here with some pretty remarkable audio uh, tape herself. And again, she's using something called Frank's Box, and this is a device that uh, allows... Well, as an investigator, Rosemary, again, just to, uh, to, to clarify, you could walk into a location, ask a specific question of an entity, and get an immediate response, and you would actually hear it coming over the device, as opposed to going in with a recorder and then not being able to hear the tape until you got home or hear the voice until you got home. Correct? You do hear it real time, Richard. And in addition, you also get EVPs. Whenever I play a recording back from a box session, uh, I hear things that I didn't pick up with my ears. Um, either I'm uh, focused on uh, a more, more dominant voice and I don't hear something in the background, or something is not a class A voice, it's a fainter class voice, and uh, the recorder will pick it up, but the ear won't. Uh, scan is very fatiguing to listen to, and uh, there also seems to be an optimum time window involved, and I'm not the only researcher to notice this. It takes um, usually several minutes for things to crank up. Sometimes I get things right away. 
it feels like the the whole thing is really humming at, at uh, anywhere from five to ten minutes in into a session, and usually by thirty minutes you've hit your peak. Uh, I have had sessions be productive beyond that, forty-five minutes, even up to an hour. But um, that an hour? Sorry, an hour-long conversation with the same entity? Uh, no. Uh, usually the entities you might get a few comments from them, and then uh, some other entities will come in. Uh, you may go several minutes uh, without anything at all, and then you may get a burst of, of communication. Um, what I'm saying is that uh, a, for a session to be productive, there seems to be a finite time span to it, no matter how long you run the equipment. And uh, it seems to be about 30 to, to 45 minutes. Um, and even back in the 70s, there were researchers saying that 30 minutes was, was an optimum time frame. Most of the answers are quite short. Uh, there are several words. They might be a sentence. Um, one of the longest messages I got was um, a response that said, Rosemary, do you have a message for me? I was asking the communicators for a message, and a voice came on and said, Rosemary, do you have a message for me? And uh, that was one of the longest communications uh, that I had gotten in quite a while. Rosemary, if you've got this device on this plane of existence, uh, in order for these spirits or whatever they are that are communicating, does that mean that they have to have something similar on on their plane of existence? That does uh, is uh, for example, I don't know, John Lennon. Uh, the late John Lennon uh, walking around perhaps with a Frank box on his side trying to communicate with us? The uh, higher level communicators uh, have indicated that they work more with thought and intention and consciousness, uh, that they modulate certain vibrations of sound and energy uh, by using consciousness on their side, which meshes with our technology and our consciousness on this side. In fact, um, the communicators have stressed, even from the days of spiritualism, that uh, human beings really need to have the right consciousness to have the communication. Uh, you have to have your intention in the right place. You have to have uh, some sort of enlightened attitude going into this. It's not for thrills. It's not for entertainment. Uh, it's certainly not for material gain, uh, and that's a message that's been pushed for a century now through various communication modes. I think that if we are talking to human beings in parallel dimensions that as versions of ourselves, uh, then yes, uh, those uh, reiterations of ourselves in parallel uh, universes have technology too, maybe devices that duplicate ours or are very similar to ours. All right, let's, um, let's set up this next uh, recording. Uh, the box is talking wave. Uh, I say wave because you send them uh, to me in wave form. Just for those listening who aren't familiar with the terminology, tell us where this uh, recording was taken. This is another one from uh, Mansfield from the Ohio State Reformatory and also in the solitary uh, confinement area, which was one of the more active areas on, on that particular night. And a um, uh, male voice says, the box is talking, uh, which indicated to me an awareness of what this device was. Uh, and the more I have used these devices, the more I have had communicators comment on the devices. And it, it does seem to draw them in like beacons. All right, let's have a uh, listen. They know what they are. Let's have a listen. The box is talking. 
the box is talking. Uh, as clear as uh, mud for some people, but I, I definitely heard that. The, the danger is when someone tells you uh, in advance what it is uh, that you're hearing, obviously, uh, then, of course, you, you automatically tend to hear that. But, I mean, who decides that's what was said? Do you make that determination? Do you give it to an, a disinterested third party to, 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 to determine what the voice was saying? Uh, these are subjective interpretations quite often. The Class A voices are usually readily understandable to um, a variety of people. And uh, I usually am with other investigators when, when I'm uh, running these devices. Uh, if, we, uh, if we all agree on what we heard, that's um, considered, we're, we're considered to be accurate. Uh, sometimes I will send clips around to other people involved in this research and ask them for their opinion on what they hear. Um, if voices get to be faint uh, or are kind of uh, ruined by uh, the scan itself, that has maybe a lot of static coming in, um, they're better off being discarded rather than, than being put in the data pool because uh, they just won't be under, understandable to the majority of people. You do have to develop an ear for this. Uh, a, a casual listener has a very hard time, even with Class A voices sometimes. And uh, as you know, Richard, they don't, they don't often play over the radio very well. There's a loss of quality there. Um, but the more you do this, the, it, it's like developing, um, um, learning a language, literally. You, you listen for the inflection, you, you pick up the, the slang, so to speak. Um, your ear understands things sure. much very, more readily. Very quickly, how did you get turned on to Frank's box? I mean, you, as an investigator, before you start using this thing, you have to be, I guess, uh, convinced more or less, that, that this thing works. I mean, how did you become familiar with it? I am convinced that this works and that uh, the evidence, a lot of the evidence I've gotten is unexplained, that it is by natural um, uh, means. Uh, I had been doing EVP for years and years, just in, in terms of my ongoing interest in the paranormal research, and I considered it very limiting. Um, and about... Uh, about four years ago, uh, four or five years ago, I uh, started hearing about uh, this device called Frank's Box, which actually was not a new invention so much as a new version of an older idea to, to use um, something that involved modulation of frequencies or tones or sounds to communicate with spirit. And uh, Frank Sumption, uh, who is the namesake for Frank's Box, is... Uh, the man who put these devices on the, the current popular map. Uh, there weren't very many of them around. They were only in, in the hands of a very few people. And I saw some demonstrations, uh, and I was quite impressed by, uh, by what I heard. And I contacted Frank and asked him about the possibility of getting a device. He doesn't sell them. He makes everyone by hand, and he's only made about 59 so far. Uh, he's pretty much directed by the spirits, who who we feel should get them, and um, so it have wasn't you, very long after that that I received two of them. Have you ever tried to contact someone that you know, someone close to you, using Frank's box, who's on the other side, who's passed away? I have, and uh, I have had um, really no success dialing people up on demand. Um, there are other researchers who um, say they can. 
Um, my preference really is to allow whoever is able or present to communicate. If I'm in a particular location, I might ask if uh, I'm doing an investigation, are there people associated with that location who would like to communicate? Or are there people who, um, who know me or who know the people I'm with who would like to communicate? But um, I haven't dialed up uh, any dead relatives um, or, or dead friends or professional colleagues. Because, I mean, that would be, to me, that would be uh, the, the, the very con- compelling proof is that if someone recognizes the voice that's coming through as a, a, a dead person, whether it's a friend. Let's say, again, I use the John Lennon comparison you, or example. You go to the Dakota building and you take Frank's box. And if John Lennon's voice shows up on Frank's box and you, uh, in, in direct response f- f- to a question that you've given him so that we know it's in real time, and then you have a, a, a voice an, uh, analyst compare the voice on Frank's box with an actual recording of John Lennon made before he died, obviously, there you have pretty compelling evidence, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Well, yes, and in fact, there are many, many examples of that uh, in the literature and also in recordings, uh, and, and um, I'm sure some people could probably find a lot of examples of that on the net. I, I know researchers who have, for example, talked to deceased family members, and they say, I recognize the voice. I knew immediately it was my, you know, my dead daughter or my dead mother. Uh, and people have gotten very, I've seen people get very emotional in sessions and even come, come close to significant emotional breakdowns uh, when they recognize uh, the voice of somebody coming from the other side. I'll bet. Listen, got to take a quick time out. Stay put, Rosemary. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. And, uh... We are just about at the end of the program, Rosemary. Um, again, the website, visionaryliving.com. Uh, your next investigation, can you give us a tease? Where are you headed with Frank's box? I'm going to Savannah this weekend and um, be doing a variety of places there. So uh, that's my next stop. Uh, a lot of people run these devices um, at their homes, too. You know, you don't necessarily need to be out on an investigation uh, to get results. Well, uh, I, uh, if you capture anything significant, I hope you'll share it with us. And it's always a, a pleasure having you on the program, Rosemary. So uh, stay in touch, and thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, again, uh, visionaryliving.com. All right, just in, a, in the few minutes that uh, remain, let me uh, just give you some information on how you can get in touch with uh, me and this program, because your input is very important. I want to hear from you. I also want the station here at AM740 to hear from you. And uh, my email here at uh, the radio station is conspiracyshow at am740.ca. Conspiracyshow at am740.ca. I'll also direct you to my website which is Richard Serrett, and let me spell that uh, last name for you, if you're new to the program, S, as in Simon, Y, R, E, T as in Tom, T as in Tom, Richard Serrett.com. 
And there you'll find information on the, uh, the upcoming shows, also past show information. There's also an audio archive site there where you can listen to past shows. And uh, there'll be, um, well, there's a, uh, a, a section for uh, uh, books and DVDs. We'll, we'll call it the Book and DVD Club. If an author's been on the show and they've got a book or a DVD, for example, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, some of her works uh, can be found on my, uh, my Book and DVD Club page on the website. The uh, previous guests, uh, Don Schmidt and uh, Tom Carey, the authors of Roswell, uh, the Roswell book, rather, uh, that can be found uh, on there. And uh, what else is there? There is a secret documents section. These are declassified uh, uh, documents. John Lennon's FBI files, for example, are there. So there's a lot going on at richardserra.com. I certainly uh, urge you to get onto that website and uh, as well. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Always looking for uh, uh, for new followers or stalkers, as the case may be. Anyway, I, again, I want to hear from you. want to know what you uh, like about the show, what you don't like about the show. And uh, just a quick story in the time that remains. I've been, I meant to tell this last week. I didn't have time. My uh, bride, the mighty Aphrodite, recently started a new job. Uh, there is some security involved, so that in order to get inside the building or inside the uh, the office, you have to have a fingerprint scan. And this is... Uh, I have some issues with this in terms of privacy, but anyway... There were some new recruits that showed up, and one in particular looked very odd to her. Uh, I don't mean to be unkind, but the, the description was he looked a little bit like a troll. And um, anyway, when they tried to get his fingerprints for the scan, they call it an, an identity script, they couldn't. His, they couldn't get his fingerprint uh, scan. They couldn't get his, uh, the read on his fingerprint as, as if he had none. And... The mighty Aphrodite, of course, uh, well-versed in the type of program that I do, sort of said under her breath, mind you, and across the room while this was going on, this guy must be an alien-human hybrid. Half-jokingly, again, under her breath and across the room, this gentleman immediately turned and fixed his eyes on hers and gave her a look that could kill. All right? Again, her comments were not audible to the person standing next to her, let alone from across the room. A very odd-looking man, remember, and they can't get his fingerprint scan. An alien-human hybrid, perhaps? Well, let me tell you, <laughs> uh, she's um, quite grateful that uh, he's no longer with the company. I guess they couldn't get his scan, so he's not allowed in the building. Anyway, uh, Victor Vigiani, who was on the program very early, uh, wants you to get in touch with him at zland at simpatico.ca. Zland, I should say. The letter Z, land at simpatico.ca. All right. I'm late. That's it for me. My thanks to Dan Ellison for production. Back next week, the, uh, the upcoming anniversary of Princess Diana's murder. We'll talk about that. You heard me correct. Murder. And uh, some of the signs that Armageddon will begin on 9-11. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I speak in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.